0: Welcome to Fraternal Review, the podcast. We are honored to have on the show today, right worshipful brother Michael Jarzebeck, past junior Grand Warden from Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, who's also the chairman of education and training for the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. Brother Michael is here today to discuss his latest contribution to the Fraternal Review magazine, which is an entire issue focused on the author H.P. Lovecraft, covering Freemasonry and this well-known author of The Macabre. Welcome to the show, Brother Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I think last time we sat down and had a discussion was regarding Moby Dick and Freemasonry. Well, so really excited to speak with you again. Excited to speak with you as well. You started this issue going from Moby Dick to H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, that in itself is, is a question. You know, <laughs> how did we get from point A to point B? Uh, but before we, we get there... You start the issue with obviously your your welcome introduction from the guest editor, the guest editor's word, and you share with the, with the readers that this is your fifth issue of Fraternal Review. And so, of course, it, it raises the question like, how has the journey been for you now completing five really stellar pieces of, of research and writing for Fraternal Review?
1: I mean, it's been amazing. I, I love working with you guys. I mean, I list, you know, there's many a days where I wish I lived in California so we could collaborate more, you know, the things we've been able to do. I don't think there's anywhere else that I could have done this stuff. Right. Like definitely no other Masonic publication that I know of that would have let me stretch things out the way that you guys allowed me to. And, you know, really, really do some challenging research, not just like George Washington's a Mason or, you know, all the, other random stuff that you'd not normally hear. And, uh, I think it's been an amazing journey.
0: Yeah, and it's allowed you to explore different depths and regions of your own intellectual pursuits. Is that is that what I'm picking up?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems to be time. It always seems to be timely, right? It's what's going on in the world. Like it, it it's never just an issue that just sits in time, sits in like time and space. It's like it's like an issue that means something at that moment. And so it's like looking back at the issues, I can see a snapshot of like. Where I was at, like what headspace I was at, what I was into, whether it was the death of ritual or the, that first punk scene that we did with the, uh, the dissonance issue. It it has been, like you said, it, calling it a journey is definitely probably the best thing that you could call it.
0: So it's been personal for you on a few different levels then, as you, I guess, look back and, and see where you were in your own journey, in your own life's journey and how that matches to some of the subject material that you were taking on in each issue. Oh, definitely.
1: And I think, you know, for me personally where I'm at and then, you know, with working with Doug and working with Angel and, and Jeriel and some of the other, and Dago, obviously, and you, it's that growth as a writer and as an editor. You know, I think that when I look back, would I have done things the same way in, in that first, in that dissonance issue? Probably not. I would probably think done things a lot differently because I think I'm stronger now because of the process that
0: we've gone through. Yeah. Well, you've been training. This is like five issues yeah. now <laughs> that uh, you have under your belt. And that's come with a lot of training, a lot of effort, uh, certainly tremendous amount of research and work and, and thought energy that's gone into it. Can you point to one or two, maybe a, a, a few things even of places where you have grown a, uh, is it writing specifically or you know other places where maybe you've you've learned or things have changed or places you've grown
1: I think definitely in in terms of writing and you know in terms of I, mean, I remember the first article I wrote for you guys and I think I turned it in it was probably 3 times as long as it was supposed to be I was like well there's enough here to to write a book and Dago said something to the effect of like you're not writing a book Mike you're writing an article so cut it down <laughs> you know and so so being able to kind of to fit to the format and and to do that and, and the or, the way that I organize my ideas, even the way that I that I would outline the article and start to write it and, or the issue and the, how I put that together and being able to take direction. I mean, being able to take direction, whether it's from Doug or whether it's from Angel and saying like, this really isn't going to work, you know, and like you need to rework it. And I think that's a tough thing for creative people, right? To like you write this thing, and you think it's your masterpiece and they're like, well, guess what? like go back to the drawing board because these things need to be fixed. And I don't think they've ever like told me to go directly back to the drawing board, but, you know, sometimes you get attached to your ideas and approaching it in a professional way where you can take criticism is not easy.
0: Yeah. So just to to kind of recap some key ideas there, you mentioned you've learned a lot about collaboration, working with others as as a team, as every aspiring Freemason should. Uh, you've learned okay. quite a bit about humility. You know how to take criticism and critique in stride. You've uh, you've shared that you know your writing style in in general. You've learned to be more clear and and use brevity uh, quite a bit. And then just how you approach writing in terms of process has also improved. I mean that, that's quite a spectrum. Right when you hear me list that out, I mean that that's quite an accomplishment and quite a. Spectrum of growth that you've shared there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, in reality, we're going back four or five years, right? Like from when I first started writing with the Fraternal Review and first started editing. I think, I think I first edited the first issue four years ago, Um, because I think I did two one year, but I could be wrong. But yeah, I I think there is a lot there because it's been a long journey. I mean, and we're talking about the five issues that I edited, not the other five that I've contributed to, and you know that that also helped with that growth. Yeah. you know being able to write about things i'll let you in on a little secret when i started this issue i wasn't really an hp lovecraft fan and i might have read one of his stories but you know i took the challenge and i i like i immersed myself in the topic and then started to write about it which is its own challenge on its own you know it's easy to write about stuff that you're a huge fan about but to write about something that you really didn't know and to immerse yourself into something especially something so deep as like the lovecraft mythos It's got to be the one of the most prolific bodies of work out there in terms of in terms of his work, in terms of others work and that they've added on to it. And there's so much it's hard to separate sometimes,
0: you know. Yeah, absolutely. And there's quite a dedicated following to his work as well. So you may have felt I'm speculating here, but you may have felt like a little bit of an imposter (laughs) syndrome. Like, am I going to be able to pull this off knowing that there are HP Lovecraft diehards that are going to pick this issue up and, you know, really scrutinize what you're bringing to the table? I I appreciate the fact that in every issue, it seems, and we've talked now, I think, about three, we've had podcast discussions for three of the five that that we're referring to. And in each of those conversations, I you got the sense that this had been your biggest challenge to date. And now, in this issue, you open again with your guest editor's words saying, this has been the most challenging issue. <laughs> so so part of that growth is also like really testing your boundaries and and continuing to push yourself. but but I'm curious, in addition to you not really knowing or being a fan of of Lovecraft from the get-go, how, how else was this a challenge for you, or the most challenging in in your words? So I think at times I was
1: I was telling the story or I was inside I felt like I was inside a Lovecraft story like staring into the abyss and into the eyes of this like inconceivable as Lovecraft would put it cyclopean monster and that was kind of a wild part of the journey as it was and up to the last days I really wasn't sure it was going to get done I think I think every author probably without exception struggled with ever with the articles and to your point i mean i do tend to i do tend to always say that it's the most challenging issue is because i keep on trying to challenge myself i don't want to just mail it in for you guys but yeah. this issue in, in particular i think some of the things that made it challenging were for one the vastness as i talked about the vastness of the lovecraft's world it's not only his fiction it's he was like the like the original author that was There was fan fiction during his lifetime. Like he was letting other people write into the mythos before, you know, before he was even done writing about it. So you have other authors and then afterwards you have this whole huge, you know, fan fiction and you also have the, the vastness of the scholarship, which is in a long, in a lot of reasons or in a lot of parts due to his biographer, S.T. Joshi, who I think there might be 30 or 40 books that they've published on Lovecraft. Wow, and this is everything from like his travel logs of where he traveled to different things that he wrote to letters. Like he wrote, he wrote more words in letters than he ever did in print. So trying to dig through all of that and try to understand it to try to really like put some serious scholarship there. Like we're not trying to just make a couple, you know, easy connections and be like, oh, I see a, I see a. A single eye. It's an all-seeing eye. It must be. It must be Freemasonry. Like we really wanted to, to dive in, and I think to dive in, you had to understand him. And he's a difficult guy to understand. He's a difficult guy to like. You know, he was extremely racist. He was a extremely. He was a loner. Like he, most of his friends, he he, those letters that he wrote were with friends that he never met. But his actual going out and meeting people seemed to be a lot less prevalent. Like he. He marries early in his life, like this whirlwind romance, and then it's over within probably quicker than it'd be than it started. Interestingly enough, he's racist, but he marries a Jewish woman. Like it, it's just once you get in and you try to understand him, then it, it it's like you go down these deep rabbit holes, and then not to mention the allusions that he makes in his actual writing to some of the things that we're going to talk about and that we talked about in the issue.
0: Yeah and and then you had the additional challenge of then tying all of that back to freemasonry and blue lodge freemasonry so why lovecraft then i mean you you're describing a less than ideal character someone who is extremely complicated to understand someone that you hadn't really read much at the time you took this assignment on and you weren't really a huge fan and at the surface, maybe there weren't many connections. I, I know one piece does reference a lodge. But on the surface, aside from that, maybe not as many connections to Freemasonry as, as other authors that you could have chosen. So why Lovecraft?
1: Honestly, the number one reason was I wanted to see what Dago would do with the illustrations. The monsters of Lovecraft, the the beings in Lovecraft, they are they're, they're these phenomenal, like, I was much more in love with the imagery than I was before I was in love with the the work and I love what Dago does with the magazine. So I wanted to see what he would do. Like I, I thought it would be a good challenge for him and, and he could have fun with it. Something he could have fun with. So that was, that was the first reason. The second reason comes down again to relationships and, you know, Brian Simmons, who's one of my best friends and, you know, we do almost everything together. Like he lived, he moved to Rhode Island and he's, he would send me, text messages with like pictures of like, Hey, here's this thing from Lovecraft. Here's this, here's his grave. I'm like, I don't really know much about him. And then he would, you know, we would talk back and forth and, and he really approached him. He liked him. He liked his work, but he also liked, like the, the fact that it was, so that now was local. It wasn't just the fact of it's, this is a writer. And the same thing happened with Moby Dick and with uh, Melville in the fact that, you know, Brian was hanging around in New Bedford and New Bedford has Moby Dick references. So the same thing is we see these Providence references. And then another friend of mine, Ryan Wheaton, he's also, he's a huge fan of of Lovecraft. And I went, every time I would go somewhere, I would, if I saw something that was like a, you know, a picture or something like that, I would get it for him. And he would show me these things. And like the town next town over from me, Lovecraft writes about it. And it's in one of like one of the stories that has some Masonic, what I think are some Masonic connections are actually, it's like happened the next town over. So that local aspect of it and the fact that he's really writing about New England and that's where I live, you know, so that, that gave me a reason to do it between those three relationships. And then I think in Masonic New Hampshire, Angel and I sat down and had a conversation about, you know, just the, the magazine in general and, and different directions we could go in the future. And, I don't know if it was him or me, and I'll give him credit because I don't really care who gets the credit. But I think one of us said we should do Lovecraft. You know, we were talking about different what we what would we do after Moby Dick, and you know, I think I think it was him that said like we should do Lovecraft. You know, be a, that would be an interesting thing that people would be into. So, you know, that's all of that combined with the fact that you had this TV show Lovecraft Country, which I'm not sure if you watched, but was this like um HBO series that flipped it on its head and where where Lovecraft was usually writing from a really from a racist and misogynist point of view they flipped all that on its head and made the main characters uh people of color and I really enjoyed that and then Stranger Things is again plays off of that and you know being a fan of of heavy metal Metallica has what I learned later, I knew of. I knew of at least one, but there's four songs that they had that were, you know, had Lovecraft references. So all those things combined to to making me
0: want to do this issue. It's a lot of rationale there, a lot of persuasive inspiration, and inspiration I think is the is the key that I clutched onto there. Inspired by the images that Lovecraft portrays in his story. Inspired by Brother Dago Rodriguez, who's the Just for those listeners who's not familiar with that name, he was the former master of the Southern California Research Lodge and current creative director. He's the one that's responsible for all the layout and design creative direction for the magazine. You're inspired by what your friends were and fellow brethren were sharing with you and prompting you. And then very much like the Moby Dick issue, I think you... Were a bit inspired by the local proximity to where you live and where you reside, and and the roots, the the Masonic roots that you've planted in that area. So, taking that idea of inspiration, this leads me to my next question, then, which uh, comes from a quote. This is the uh, the final word on the back cover of the issue. This is from Alexander Pietagorski. And uh, he writes in his book, Freemasonry, A Study of a Phenomenon. He writes, quote, In fact, the whole line of American Romanticism, from Edgar Allan Poe through Nathaniel Hawthorne to H.P. Lovecraft, was permeated with and inspired by, there's that word, inspired by Masonic symbols, associations, and reminiscences. So... Rough sketch as we go a little deeper into this issue. Do you have a few handy examples of where the work, the the Lovecraft work, was in fact permeated with and inspired by Masonic ideas and symbols?
1: I'll start by saying that I don't entirely agree with the quote. You know, Angel points out in his article that Lovecraft's understanding of Freemasonry and the occult is rather superficial. That's pretty much a quote from his article. And Mark Pirro in his article points out that it's like, Life imitating art, and the other people make those connections. And, and some of those other people that make those connections are the author Colin Wilson, uh, Kenneth Grant, who some might know from uh, the TOTO and his work with Alistair Crowley, or Alan Moore, who wrote V for Vendetta and uh, The Watchmen. But more specifically, he wrote a graphic novel called Providence, which was his story using all of the Lovecraft mythos and him telling a story through that mythos, but he does a much better job attaching the craft to the mythos than Lovecraft ever did. Like he directly, he puts Masons in it. He directly, like specifically calls them out more than Lovecraft ever did. So all that's to say that I think that as we show on the issue, his work is more filled with Masons than it is with Freemasonry. And so a few of those examples are for one, his grandfather his grandfather was an accomplished mason, um, started a lodge in Green, uh, Rhode Island. He was a member of the same commandery that Thomas Smith Webb started, St. John's number one in in Rhode Island, in Providence. And he was a huge influence on Lovecraft. So there's connections there. Some of the characters, as Brian points out in his article, uh, some of the characters the names come from like the past master's list of his lodge in Rhode Island in Lovecraft's grandfather's lodge, not Brian's. And you, you also come out with uh, Abraham Whipple, uh, who was a, it's kind of an infamous kind of guy. Brian, Brian Simmons had wrote some, some things about the Gatsby, the burning of the Gatsby, which was like this pre tea party, probably the first, the first shot of the revolution kind of thing where they they took a British ship and they burned it. And you, as you see in the article, Abraham Whipple is a—he's a hero, like he's a hero in the Gatsby. And he writes a story that's almost like the Gatsby with the same characters from historically from the Gatsby. And yet they go after this guy named Joseph Curran, who they think is like a, a warlock or a witch. And they go after him and they and they they try to stop him. And and there's people like. Uh, John Brown and Essex Hopkins, who was like the first Commodore of the Navy who famously flew the, uh, the Gadsden flag. That's always full of controversy. That was his personal flag on his ship. So he brings these guys in and uses them as heroes. And they're all Freemasons. They're all, they're all Freemasons that are very involved in the beginning of Freemasonry in Rhode Island, as well as the beginning of America. So he uses, he uses characters like that. And then in, we're going to go into this a little bit more, so I don't really want to go into it in detail, but in his story, The Shadow Over Ends Mouth, he uses Freemasonry in a much more overt way than he ever does in anything else.
0: Yeah, and I think there's also a reference to a lodge, right, that um, comes out. So I guess that is being inspired by Freemasonry, right, referencing the lodge. Do you want to share a little bit about that in the, in the next question, <laughs> which I know you're ready for? And then... I guess just touching upon the idea that one of the things I gleaned from this issue was the idea, cause I was looking for the connections between Lovecraft, his storytelling and Freemasonry. And one of the things I gleaned from these articles was that the heroes that he referenced in his stories were Masons to, to a large degree as you just articulated, but then the villains or the things he feared or the things that were monstrous represent kind of anti-Masonic, or like the the thing that the light of Freemasonry is trying to battle against. So like the, the villains in his stories in a way symbolize the thing at which Freemasonry helps us overcome. So there's references, I guess, by virtue of the 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 anti-hero or the or the villain. Do you, do you want to speak a little bit to that? Do I do I have that assessment correct or not?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think Mark speaks about that a lot in in his article. But it's weird cuz Lovecraft never really uses heroes. Like when you, when you think about it, except for in a few examples, Lovecraft's heroes are kind of like they go insane from from just having to deal with this unfathomable idea or this unfathomable creature or vastness of the universe, this cosmicism that that he pretty much you know, perfected if not created as an art form. And so you don't really see a lot of heroes. In in some cases, that just the fact of standing up to something like that, just the fact of sacrificing yourself is a way to be a hero. Because most of the villains aren't really named, other than, you know, Joseph Curran is, and some other cases they are. But if they're named, they're they're still like they're these huge concepts, these huge demonic beings you know from another realm from another dimension so yeah i think the best example of like that hero and villain thing playing out especially in a masonic way is something we haven't really touched upon yet is is the the houdini story right and and this was kind of time. this is what i this is what i really settled down to to talk to write about this is what i chose when we first started and and then interestingly enough, you guys at the Grand Lodge of California, it was all it was like Houdini year over there this year. So it kind of fit perfectly.
0: Yeah, talk about great timing, right? I mean, that was that that was unplanned unless Dago somehow knew that the two things were gonna yeah, no. intersect. Yeah, no, he
1: didn't. It was it was totally it was totally uh, incidental, accidental. You know, it didn't, yeah. it, it yeah. wasn't planned at all. Um, I'd love to say we planned it, but we didn't.
0: Yeah, it certainly seemed by design and maybe Grand Lodge California thinks in some way we were taking lead or taking notes from uh, from what they had planned. But, yeah, I'm sure we were it, doing that. Yeah, <laughs> but for the, for the listeners that maybe haven't picked up the issue yet and who may not even be familiar with the fact that Houdini was in fact a Freemason, can you just give us the, the, the baseline there, the, the groundwork for that? Yeah, so Houdini
1: approaches the editor of weird tales and they, they start to develop a relationship. There's a couple articles that are written beforehand. They really wanted, they wanted like an ask Houdini um, section to their, to their magazine. And they thought it was going to help with you for, with readership. And then, so they, they tell Lovecraft that they want him to write an article. And so he described Lovecraft describes it in the issue. And, in you know, in the article, in the, um, and some of the letters that I reference but he gets handed this story where basically Houdini says that he went to the Great Pyramid and that he was accosted by these ruffians and thrown down a two or like lowered down into a tomb by a rope and he had to escape from this pyramid which is like that and that and some other for some other reasons that I'll get to in a second he it's probably the most Masonic story out of anything that lovecraft wrote and it probably was unintentional like i'm not sure that he actually intended to do that as i point out in the in the article he's not a freemason uh lovecraft had been a freemason for about a year when that story was written and from the letters it looks like lovecraft himself added most of the quasi-masonic parts of that story you know so he is accosted by i think it might even be three ruffians and like i said lowered down in this this well and then he he sees some like some like ghostly demonic figures, and then he like tries to escape, and this big five-headed monster comes at him, and then he realized later that it's a huge lion's paw, and then and then at the end it was all just a dream, and so I was I was blown away by this. This this is where I wanted to go. I was like, this is it. This is the this is the article for me, right? Like this is the one I want to write. And then I found some of the letters, and I found some of the you know, Lovecraft can be hard to read. Like I alluded to earlier, like you have this, like, he uses words like cyclopean. Like he loves five and six syllable words. He loves writing like he's in the 1800s. You would think he's a contemporary of Poe and Melville, although he's writing almost a hundred years later. And I, I read these letters and the first thing I see is like, yeah, that boob Houdini. And I'm like, who is this guy? Like, who's writing this? So, so I was able to you know, I was inspired to put some of those letters in there so you could see the the difference between his writing styles and kind of learn more about him as a person. But, but yeah, I think that those, you know, that that really the fighting the ruffians, fighting the the sphinx, like I think those were some pretty pretty close to some Masonic themes that they were that they were leaning on. And uh, the funny part is that Lovecraft wrote that entire thing, and then at that wedding that I, I mentioned earlier, where he had this whirlwind wedding he lost it on the way to the on the way to new york to for the wedding and he had to rewrite it on a fly which is something i can sympathize with in in this process
0: yeah that's uh th- that's great and you know what you just said there about the letters including the letters so you could get a better sense of who lovecraft was and the difference between his writing styles that that was the exact thing that i felt when i read the quotes from his letter because of the fact that his writing was so like just ornate, right? Many syllables, very difficult to, uh, to understand because of how much like flowering (laughs) and or ornate quality there was to the language. So here's part of his letter. I think this is to a friend, right? Talking about the assignment that Houdini has asked for. He says, I've shot back a query as to how much sheer imagination who will stand for? Since I got an idea, he tries to put over his Massachusetts as straight dope. <laughs> yeah, like that's how he's writing to his friend in a yeah. letter, compared to like how we know him as the, you know, this this epic author. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of of magnificent proportion. Wow. So how about the other article that you did uh, considerably twisted version is the name of that. And we've alluded to it now a couple of times in our conversation, but could you just walk us through that article and, you know, how it, it references a Masonic lodge and then kind of what your research and discovery, uh, where that led? Yeah. So this
1: was kind of a last minute submission and going back over some of the stories that where there were illusions, you know, as I mentioned, he he bases most of his stories in New England and he makes a lot of them are fictional towns, but they're based on other places. So you get this whole another layer of, of depth to this, where you can be like, Oh, well, what was this town like? So in looking at that, I saw in the shadow over Innsmouth that he said that it was a t- considerably twisted version of Newburyport, Massachusetts. And in looking at that, you know, I'd been to Newburyport, I've spoken at Newburyport before, you know, I've done presentations there, and I know guys from there, and so I'm like, wait a minute, there's a, like, so if, if New- Innsmouth is Newburyport, then the lodge has to be the Newburyport lodge, and so I started to look into it, and it, and so this is, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm gonna use a a quote from him, because I think it's important to start off with this, so this is the exact quote from the shadow of Innsmouth, but I was not to reach my destination without one very strong impression of poignantly disagreeable quality. The bus had come to a sort of open concourse or radio point with churches on two sides and the bedraggled remains of a circular green in the center, and I was looking at a large pillared hall on the right-hand junction ahead. The structure's once white paint was now gray and peeling, and the black gold sign and gold sign on the pediment was so faded That I could only with difficulty make out the words, Esoteric Order of Dagon. This then was the former Masonic hall, now given over over to a degraded cult. So finding this, I I wanted to dig into it, and I wanted to say, like, well, so if this is Newburyport and this lodge was taken over by this Esoteric Order of Dagon, you know what? What's the history of the lodge? That's what dawned on my mind. Like, what's? So let me let me look into this lodge. And so I came across uh, a book called the H.P. Lovecraft Companion, which was written by uh, an author named Philip A. Schreffler. And he proposes that the lodge in Newburyport, which has four pillars out front, so brick building with four white pillars out front, um, that he proposes that that is Love, that is the lodge that Lovecraft is describing in the story. Now other authors say that there's a lot there's an American Legion building in Gloucester that had to be the building because the American Legion in Gloucester is this white when. and if you see some pictures of it it's peeling paint so he would have seen this one and a degraded version and they say so it couldn't be the one in Newburyport it's got to be the one in Gloucester even though Lovecraft himself says it's a twisted version of Newburyport now what I find hilarious in there is that I guess this is the realm of scholars, but they can't possibly see how someone could write a fictional story about a building that looked new and imagine what it would look like old. Like he can imagine all these like terrible beings and interdimensional beings, but Lovecraft couldn't possibly picture a building degraded when it looked brand new. So that was kind of funny to me. So I said, well, let me look back at the history of the lodge. And so I went back through the history of the lodge and and Or the Lodges, because there was four at one point, um, three back to the revolutionary times. And one of the things that I I purchased a book that's a travelogue of Lovecraft. And so he liked to travel mostly in New England. He didn't really get out of New England very much, except for a couple trips to Florida, I think. And he made some trips to Newburyport. And one of the things that Lovecraft did, he had this love for uh revolutionary era like 1700s buildings um architecture he he loved seeing that and he would go around and try to like see all these buildings and it's interesting to me too that he loves all this revolutionary history be- and even going back to the burning of the Gaspee and including his his ancestor a- abraham whipple he felt that he was like an anglophile H.P. Lovecraft actually wishes that we didn't win the Revolutionary War. So, But he loves this era anyway. So that's a little side note. But So he loves this era. And then so I go back and I'm looking and I look through the Lodge history and and through our grand historian, Walter Hunt, who he had built a website, which is a labor of love, uh, uh, MasonicGenealogy.org, which if you haven't gone on it, I mean, it's a lot of it's majority of it is Massachusetts history. There's a few other states on there now, but it is just like, a comprehensive history of massachusetts freemasonry in one wikipedia style like website so i go back to that website and i say, let me check out the lodges let me let me see what they said about these lodges and i find that those lodges were started the first lodge was started by one of our past grandmasters jeremy gridley who probably doesn't mean much to the story but then you find that one of the other lodges is started by joseph warren and then the first lodge loses their charter and i believe paul revere gives them their second charter when they when they try to reopen and uh isaiah thomas who was the famous printer and and uh proprietor of the massachusetts spy ends up giving a third lodge their charter and then there's just other references to like revolutionary period and then i'm looking back at it and i'm going well Here's his history in his site. There's a history through our through our Grand Lodge's um, proceedings, talking about the history of the buildings in Newburyport and how there were at least ten before this period, before the period of 1928ish. I think was when Lovecraft visits there and sees what's potentially the lodge, whether it's in Gloucester or there. It was the same trip. But he sees this lodge that was potentially the lodge that's in the esoteric order of Dagon. Or that's in the shadow of Innsmouth, which is the esoteric order of Dagon takes over. So I'm going back and I'm looking through this history. And I I come across Washington Lodge. And then so I start to look and they say Washington Lodge, which is on Green Street. And then I start to look at some history of the town and I said, well, Washington Lodge isn't on Green Street. It's on this other street on the other side of town. And then I do some more digging, and I find that there were two Washington Lodges. They actually, and the one that we mentioned in our proceedings is the first Washington Lodge. And so this is like the building that they're in. You know, I think the 1825s, when St. Mark's Lodge starts, this is the building that they're in. And so in figuring out that it's on Green Street, I do some more research. I talk to some more people around from that lodge, and I find that They were 500 feet away. The new lodge and the lodge, the two lodges on Green Street were 500 feet away. The older lodge, the one, the Washington Hall Lodge, was in the place of where there's a theater nowadays. And the theater is ancient, but this building was there originally until it was torn down. So I start to dig into that a little bit. And then that's where it starts to get even more interesting. Because after they move out, shortly after they move out, a man named Albert Pike decides to rent the lodge and open a school building in it. And I'm like, this can't be, like, this can't be Albert Pike. Like, I didn't even, I wasn't aware at the time that Albert Pike grew up in Massachusetts and, you know, specifically in Newburyport. And it absolutely was the same Albert Pike that we know from Morals and Dogma and and Esoterica and the Southern jurisdictions, Scottish Rite ritual. So here's this here's this connection to... One of the you know most prolific personalities in Freemasonry, and, you know, in its its entire history. So, I, you know, in going through some of the other things that Lovecraft writes about, I find some references to him talking about uh, A. Wait and some of his work and wanting to get a book that he has. And I'm like, what? Like, okay, so what's going on? Would he know that? you know, would he know he's going back to look at architecture from that period. So it would, it, it would make sense that especially when they're that much closer than we are now, you know, in 1920s to the history of that lodge building, which was only about a hundred years earlier that it would come up that Albert Pike had rented that lodge. And because of the taxal hoax and wait's defense of it in his book, devil worship in France, I think that it's it's like a no brainer that Lovecraft would have known that that it was connected to Pike and it was connected to his reputation as as a very occult personality. So it's interesting to me that so I find this and I'm like, wow, this is amazing that there's this connection here, and then I find a connection to a commandery. And so in the in the original, in the article, and I, sh- I should correct this now. So I say that it's the oldest commandery in the United States, and it's not. I, I relied on a Lodge historian's history from 100 years ago, and in further research, I found out that he was wrong. And I was like, man, so was that really, that kind of stinks that that's not the same. And it's this isn't in the article. I, we've talked about it a little bit, in but... I looked, and he names the commandery in there. He never names the lodge, but he names the commandery, and he says that this guy, Matt Elliott, there's a Zadok Allen, who's a drunk uh, lodge, that the town drunk, is telling them this history of all the weird stuff that's happening in town, and he talks about how they tried to take over this lodge from this mason, Matt Elliott, and Matt Elliott stands up to them. And... Then they just they basically made him disappear. So he's basically telling you that this Mason stood up to this like diabolical conspiracy and lost his life for it, that he he sacrificed himself for the good of town and for the good of humanity. And then so he says it's he mentions Calvary Commandery. He never mentions the lodge name. He only says that it's a lodge and the lodge gets taken over. So it's not that the lodge is an occult thing. It's that it gets taken over by an occult thing which I think is an inter- interesting distinction. So after the article I'm reading through and I go, well, where's Calvary Commandry? I don't know. It never, re- I don't know why when I was writing this article, it never dawned on me of, to ask that question. But then I find that Calvary Commandry is actually in Providence, Rhode Island, has a building blocks away from where Lovecraft grew up. He would have seen them in the, in the newspaper. He would have seen them parading around you know, Commanders love to parade around, especially at that time period. And his grandfather was a member of St. John's Commandry, who Calvary Commandry comes out of. Uh, after the anti-Masonic period, they get back. You got the old guys in the Lodge or in the commandery that are pre the uh, Morgan Affair era. And you have the guys that are coming in afterwards. And surprise, surprise, the old guys and the young guys don't get along. And they decide to break off into their own new group. And their own new group is Calvary Commandry. So his grandfather's lodge splits into Calvary Commandery. So, you know, looking through this, St. John's Commandery was started, and I think I mentioned this earlier, by Thomas Smith Webb. So, in this one story, we have connections to Albert Pike and Thomas Smith Webb, who is pretty much the godfather of the Commandery, right? Like, the the guy that makes it all happen. So, I I was just fascinated by this, on, on where all of this went, and You know, you have to ask yourself how much he he knew about all this, how much he knew about the connections, how much he knew about who these men were, especially since he grew up in a house and was raised by a grandfather who was a very prominent mason and started his own lodge. And you also have to ask yourself why he doesn't become a mason. Now, so my thoughts are he doesn't become a mason because, for one, his grandfather dies probably before he's of age to become a mason. And as I said before, he's not the most uh, outgoing guy. He doesn't go out and, and do a lot. I mean, he's, not a, he's not a guy that goes out on parties and joins a bunch of groups. But he's also an atheist. You know, and in, in one of his books, he actually says that when he was a kid, he was absolutely a pagan. And that, you know, he, that's what he would have practiced as a religion um, were it there. So this is kind of the, where we go in the story, is, is just the history of the Lodges and how he interweaves that into the story. And that's what amazes me about it is that in every case except for one, the Masonic figure in the story either stands up to evil. It's hard to call him a hero, but they always stand up to, they might not be the protagonist. But they're always a character in there standing up to evil, standing up to this unfathomable thing. I wonder if it's that he's looking at his grandfather and how his grandfather protected him after his father died when he was left without a father and became that father figure. And he's putting his grandfather in those roles. And you would think that at that time period especially that the Masons would be the bad guys, right? Like the Masons would be the evil secret society that's trying to take over the world, but they're not. They're the they're the society that's trying to save the world, and that's that's amazing to me. And the only time he differs from that is in Dunwich Horror, which is an autobiography of his. Which this part got cut because we ran out of room, but it was in Brian's article, and they say that Wilbur Wheat Wilbur Wheatley was in Wheatley. That was in the uh, that, that's the one of the main characters in that story is Lovecraft himself. And that in that story, Wilbur's grandfather takes his mother and marries her off to Yogg-Sathoth, who's like this interdimensional being and makes her mate with him. And then Wilbur's born. And so he's kind of a like his grandfather ends up being a bad guy. The only time he actually uses him in the story, theoretically, he's the bad guy. And yet every other time he uses a mason directly, we're kind of on the side of good, so it's, it's interesting that he would flip that like that
0: that is brother. Thank you for sharing your process, your findings, the connections you made i mean this is this is probably some of the best journalism I've ever heard shared on on this podcast and and now we've encapsulated it for you know, time in memoriam. So thank you. It's, it's inspirational and incredible, but it's inspiring to me to to hear you talk about your process and how you went about like turning over this stone and what about this stone and what about, oh, maybe retracing my steps, maybe what people thought, believed, read or, or wrote at the time wasn't accurate. So it's, I mean, it, it's a true form of leadership that um, that you're displaying here. And it's just wonderful that you can now share that with the audience. And I'm sure you're, you're also inspired to keep digging, right? I mean, this is, this is probably not the end of the road for you, right? I I think you have a Masonicon coming up. I want you to talk about that a little bit in which you're going to be sharing some of this research and some of these findings, but where do you go with this in addition to how you, how you plan to share this at Masonicon?
1: Yeah. So we're, We're sitting here on the 9th of September recording this, and next Saturday, so a week from today, I'll be uh, in Chicago with uh, Robert Johnson and uh, Joe Martinez and a bunch of other guys, Spencer Hammond, uh, Robert Marshall, and I'm going to be able to present this for the first time, and I kind of brought all of it together. I, I brought the articles that I was involved with anyway, I brought all those together into one story. And it's I, I'm interested to see how people take it because it's a wild ride. I mean I mean, you just went on it. So and we probably skipped a few things. But yeah, I think I'm i I'm really excited to go out there and by the time this this airs, you know, I'll i have been out there and then uh we'll see where it takes me from there. I mean, I think you know, I, I don't know, I think people are gonna connect with it. I think one of the comments on the Facebook post for Masonicon was somebody asked if there was gonna be drool cups and so in, in and start, started under the seats so that they could use them during the presentation so i hope i live up to that guy's expectation i also hope he doesn't drool all over the place because i don't think the cups are going to be there <laughs> but yeah i think i think there's that and i think that i was amazed by i after i sat back I, I was like wait like these scholars are arguing about where this building is and the one piece that they didn't have was the masonic history they were like I look in this town, there's a lodge on this street. I look in this town, there's something that looks like a lot the lodge he describes. It must be that. And they don't put two and two together because they don't have the other history. And I, I think like, who knows, maybe if if they're willing, maybe this ends up at like one of the HP Lovecraft cons or festivals or in one of their one of their publications, you know, there's quite a bit, like, as we talked about, there's quite a bit of um fan base there and and you know, it, and it goes back. It's ironically seeing that the first issue that I did was kind of like a punk scene. That that's where a lot of this kind of came back in the '80s. Was this Lovecraft with these fanzines that were coming around, and they've built from there. So who knows? Maybe those things come together, and I ad- actually end up, you know, presenting something about the Masonic illusions in Lovecraft to the Lovecraft fandom.
0: You know. Yeah, you must be surprised at how many connections you've been able to. Actually, connect <laughs> for lack of a better word, but so many, so many different points, so many different groups, individuals, personalities. I mean, you're. I I wrote uh, something down in my notes that y- you've grown as a writer. But reading this issue and and hearing this story and and really feeling the stature of this article and and the the potential that this article has to continue to connect different groups and different time periods and illuminate all of those combined, there's a real sense of like authorship to this issue. And it's, it's steeped in research um, contemplation. You've taken these loose strands that people have just like, to your point, accepted like, Oh, that must be the lodge. So you've taken these, you know, these things that have been maybe taken for granted and, you know wove them back together in these new and unexpected and very compelling ways and i i mean i'm just really in awe I'm, I've, i i i want to congratulate you again on this issue and congratulate you on this piece of journalism i'm calling it journalism i don't know if that's appropriate or not but it is it is investigative journalism that is connecting ideas people place in in really new and and inspiring ways
1: well, thank you. That means a lot, especially coming from you. I mean, I I appreciate it. And you know, I said, I'm going to try to get, keep getting better and keep pushing the edge, the envelope. I told you at the beginning that this was like, this was one of the tougher issues. And I got to tell you, I said out loud a couple of times, this will be my last issue. And <laughs> I doubt that's the case, you know, that that's, but, uh, you know, it was, it, it was an interesting process. Um, and, uh, but I, I'm glad that that we had the opportunity
0: to work together on it. Absolutely. Well, I, I certainly hope it's not your last issue. Uh, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt. But if it were, and this is the last time we have a chance to sit down and and uh, share some thoughts and some ideas together, what would you leave us with? What, what's your, what are your parting words? Right, that's a tough one. But I think it's something in the, in the
1: fact of to look at our craft and see what the power of an idea is, you know, see the power of an idea, whether that's Southern California research lodge getting together and having this big vision for what the magazine can be today, what it is today. You know, I mean, that, that was an, that was an idea. There was nothing like it at the time. It was just this idea. And now, you know, it's really all over the world, right? Like this, this idea has traveled all over the world and people connect with it. I know Dago said that he went to the United Grand Lodge of England and they have copies of the fraternal review like in their library you know and and so and it's brought so many of us together like across the country and and so the ideas of of these men like hp lovecraft died alone he died alone and yet his work is still touching people today is still like inspiring people today in music and film and media and freemasonry so i think it's that to never be afraid to to follow through on an idea, as crazy as it may sound. (laughs)
0: It's excellent. We'll just let those words linger. Thank you, Brother Michael. Until next time.
1: Fraternal Review has been published for over six decades and each issue is dedicated to a specific topic such as Masonic symbols, lore, and history. If you enjoyed this episode of Fraternal Review's podcast, please subscribe, support, or visit our website for more information. You can become a digital, print, or digital and print subscriber of the Fraternal Review magazine at theresearchlodge.com.